0: Dig me out. Tim and Jay welcome special guest Sean Smith to review the
1: album EDC by Satchel.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host Tim Benici, and joining me once again my co-host Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, how are you this evening? Yeah, I'm relieved. Yeah, I'm relieved I'm re- too.
1: <laughs> because uh, we usually have to make up all the stuff about the bands that we talk about because they're so hard to find and uh, so difficult to get on the line and talk to, and tonight we don't have to do that.
2: Yeah, usually we're, re- we're reviewing some obscure Australian band that put out one album in 1992, <laughs> and none of their members are in bands anymore, and there was never a internet review for them anywhere, and you have one line in a Wikipedia entry. But tonight, we don't have to do that. No. We can get the, we can get the information firsthand, because we have a special guest with us tonight, I'm super excited, and I know you are too. We have, from the bands, I'm going to list all these bands, this is going to take a while, from Brad, Satchel, Pigeonhead, All Hail the Crown, From the North, that's just the first half of the bands. We have Mr. Sean Smith with us. Sean, welcome to the podcast, thanks for being on. How are you this evening?
0: I'm good, thanks for having me.
2: So I mentioned all those bands that you were in. Did you have any time to do anything else from between, like, 1992 and 1997? Or were you pretty much just always in a recording studio or on tour?
0: Oh, well, there's a lot more free time than you'd think. I'm not working all the time, and then I wasn't then either. And usually one thing wasn't going on at the same time as the other, so...
2: Yeah, we have some, uh, you know, we're going to get into the history of... Satchel specifically, because we're we're gonna be talking about the album EDC, which um, came out in 1994. But there's some overlap between the various bands. Uh, Regan Hagar played in both played drums or plays drums in both Brad and Satchel. Yeah. So and then he was also in Malfunction. Mm-hmm. Were there any other members that crisscrossed besides yourself and Reagan in the in the various bands that you played in?
0: Um, later, uh, we well uh, a guy was. Uh, uh, that replaced the bass player on our first Satchel record. He joined Satchel for the second record, and he, then he also joined Brad up until a few years ago. So that was the only other crossover. Okay. But Brad, Brad didn't really exist. We just recorded for three weeks and then made that record, and then we weren't really like a band, you know, rehearsing all the time or anything, until later in the '90s.
2: That's the first album, Shame, that came out in '93.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Well, what I tell you what, let's do a little bit of the history so that everybody is aware of um, the backstory on Satchel.
1: History of the band.
2: And if I get anything wrong, jump in because okay. the first uh, time Satchel got together was in late 1991. Um, mm-hmm. There were, the original members were Reagan Hagar on drums, we mentioned, John Hogue, is it? Is that he pronounced mm-hmm. the last? Okay. On guitar, yeah. and then Corey Kane on bass. Yeah. And then the first album didn't come out until 1994. Yeah. So what was the, I'm going to ask a question here since we're at this point. Why was there such a, a gap between the band forming and then an album coming out? Was, was it because of Brad and Pigeonhead? putting out albums in
0: 93 uh, truthfully the band we started and we just started playing gigs within three weeks so by I think our first gig was on uh, we played a New Year's Eve thing and we just did tons of stuff for the next six months and by the end of that six months I was uh, I didn't think the band was that great Uh, our songwriting wasn't that great I'm just for me, uh, you know, there was hints of something good there. And, you know, I think we made this cassette that everyone, we lost, that we wish we had. But it, uh, there was, you know, there was something there, but I was starting to be a little disillusioned. And then uh, Sub Pop gave, uh, put me and Steve Fisk together and gave us money to start recording Pigeonhead. So it was summer in 92, we spent recording first Pigeonhead. And I probably doubt you know, was rehearsing with Satchel that whole time but it wasn't really progressing. And then we did the me and Regan went and did Brad in, in October ninety two. And I think me doing Pigeonhead Record and the Brad Record started to teach me how to write songs more that I didn't know before and and then we just spent kind of a lot of messing around, you know. And uh, we were just a kind of a band that just got together and, you know, smoked pot and and played for fun. And and so, but by around, once the Brad record came out, uh, and I sort of got us a deal with the people that, with Epic that put out put out Brad and sort of without anyone hearing any songs. And I just kind of got it in there. And we spent the summer of 93... recording we had a a track next door uh my friend barrett jones had and uh we just started recording and working and and uh so we didn't start making making an album until uh you know the fall of 93 so
1: did you ever have any um you said that you had some doubts about the band did you ever consider maybe doing a solo record or using Sort of connections with uh, with Epic to do something other than Satchel, or
0: well, I I um personally in back in ninety I had gotten a demo deal with a uh, CBS which became Sony and I was a solo artist to begin with, but I kind of just wanted to try a band because uh, I didn't want to be a you know Michael Bolton or something. So, <laughs> um, um, but uh, I just made it, really, it was a loyalty to Regan because we had initially started playing music together back in 88, and so we'd always had kind of a dream of having something, having a band and Mm -hmm. getting it together, so really it was my loyalty to him that made me make the decision to, to stay with the band and maybe use what I'd learned in making Pigeonhead and Brad and try and make that band happen more and I think you know that it worked out but it was it was kind of tough
2: so you were able to get a deal for Satchel with Sony without Sony actually hearing
0: anything yeah because basically my demo tape was the Brad Shame album you know okay so I was basically being signed off that and then I was asked what did I want to do and I wanted to do Satchel and then when we get in when we get into the record label situations it was you know, it was difficult because, you know, our a and guy, once we were, you know, signed and working on stuff, and I was sending him stuff, he's like, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the Shame album, you know, there's Buttercup, nice mm-hmm, ballad. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, yeah. you know, where's Buttercup? You know, where's, you know, what is this stuff <laughs> you're sending me? What is this crazy psychedelic band you, you have that I would have never signed? <laughs> yeah. You know? So, and that, you know, that... Uh, That phone call I wrote Suffering and anger After that So
2: Oh really uh,
0: So it it, Yeah I said Oh you want that Here's that Fucker (laughs) So And then you know It turns out to be Such a nice song That I was actually Kind of angry
3: Oh man I love that I, I,
0: I, I was I was I was You know Idealistic I guess I mean I didn't know I just I didn't know what, it was my first time with a major label and that was my first real interaction with it and it was, it was tough, you know, because they're telling you what to do and and expect things of you that, I don't know, I didn't, naively didn't, you know, know or understand, I guess.
2: So that wasn't like dealing with, with sub-pop. Sub-pop was more hands-off when you were recording the first Pigeon Head? Well,
0: yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, we were, yeah, completely hands-off, but I also had more of a veteran, you know. Record guy in my partner, Steve Fisk. You know, he was all Screaming Trees and he had his own label at one, you know, his own indie before. And, you know, he was more of a vet. And I learned a lot from him.
2: Just so um, we catch everybody up. So, after in 2004, the EDC album comes out. Two years later, the family or 94, yeah, 94 comes out. Two years later in 1996, the family comes out. Yeah. Different bass player uh, Mike Berg's on bass For that one And then The the band goes on hiatus After that Pretty much
0: Well we We broke up Okay I mean the The guitar player At the end of a long tour Long for us Was ten weeks It wasn't like a year But He uh, The day before uh, The last show of the tour Or the second last show Of the tour In Chicago He had a flip out And flew home Huh one of the guys in one of the other bands on the tour filled in for a couple shows, and got it done.
2: But. So did you know in 96, I'm assuming this was in 96, mm-hmm. That did you know that the following year you'd be putting out records with Brad and Pigeonhead? Or was that stuff, like um, you got back and you were like, now I need to work well, on other stuff?
0: That's right. Pigeonhead, I think that record came out in, I think, January of 97, I think. Yeah. Right? Well, that is another story, because we, I, we recorded that in August 95. Oh. And uh, Sub Pop had a grand plan, and, and it involved like a lot of time set up, and then the guy that was really behind it, the, a, the A&R guy, he quit. And then it just didn't come out until you know, a year and a half later. So, Okay. Uh, and then Brad happened because Satchel fell apart, and then Stoney said he wanted to do another one. You know, it was okay, you know.
2: So then, uh, 2005, mm-hmm. former or uh, four unreleased tracks are released on the Brad vs. Satchel compilation, uh, split between the two bands, and then in 2010, the new album Heartache and Honey came out. Are there plans to do anything in the future? I, I've heard rumors of new Brad and possibly Pigeonhead coming soon.
0: Well, well, we haven't. We have a new Pigeonhead, but it's it it was recorded ninety eight percent of it in in two thousand and was aborted. Oh, um, and just had trouble getting someone to put it out. And then uh, Brad has a new record coming out in April. Satchel has a show tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but I, you know we just haven't. You know, we made a record, that heartache and honey record, and then, uh, you know, I'm I'm I've been doing other I've been doing Brad. I've been working on a Brad record for a year so. Right. And Satchel's a little different. It's a little pra- practicing is really loud, and I'm I don't know. It's different. It's a lot. It's you know, it's a different monster.
2: Well, it's sonically it's different than from Brad. Yeah.
0: And, and we did we did two years. Uh, we, you know, after we worked on that Heartache and Honey record, you know, we're not, you know, there's no money, you know, that kind of thing. So, no gotcha. Money, what, what do you
2: do? So, okay, that pretty much gets us caught up on the history. Uh, there have been a bunch of other albums by Brad by Pigeonhead. We mentioned a couple of them. I wanted to mention the All Hell the Crown record. That was one I, I was oblivious to for a while, and then Jay pointed out. I, I got to say, I, I'm really like that record I was actually uh, my wife gets mentioned a lot on this podcast because she's the, the smarter one of the two of us she's actually a music educator and she's, she's a fan and she heard it and she doesn't like heavy music quote unquote Yeah. and she yeah. was like this is amazing yeah. and I was gonna sort of draw a line because to me that sounds like the heaviest that your songwriting has been since this first Satchel record mm-hmm. is that f- a fair comparison in terms of what you were doing songwriting wise?
0: Well, yeah, and, and you know, All Hail the Crown, like, I, I didn't have to, I didn't do any, I just, uh, the, the band cut the tracks and I went in and did the vocals. So huh. I didn't have to, I didn't have to arrange anything or, or you know, that made that real easy for me. And, and, and it was really good and I really loved all the riffs and like, it was just real easy and inspiring to go in and just sing on that thing.
1: The guitar playing on that album is is pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, it's you know, it's that Kevin Wood is Andy Wood's brother, you know, from Mother Love Bone, mm-hmm. and he oh, was yeah. in Kevin was in Malfunction with Regan.
1: Has he done yeah. anything since between those two bands? I sort of lost track of him after Mother Love Bone and then this.
0: You mean Kevin Wood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin wasn't in Mother Love Bone. He was in Malfunction. And then oh, I'm sorry, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he was in uh, Fire Ants. Okay. And uh, Devil Head, I believe both of them were with his brother Brian singing. Oh, okay. Devil Head was on, uh, they put out a couple records on Stone's Loose Groove label. Was, Brad was on, too, for one record. And
1: right. He's a,
0: you know, he's a brilliant guitar player. Yeah, it's
1: very, very original but, playing.
0: Yeah, his riffs are... Are stellar. I mean, he comes up. And a couple of the riffs were, a couple of the songs were also, the riffs came from uh, the bass player, Rob Day. And uh, these guys are all, all three of them are from Bainbridge Island, where Regan's from too, so it's kind of a Bainbridge Island uh, heaviness.
1: <laughs> <laughs> cool, yeah.
2: I th- let's get into the album, because that's, that's what we're all about here, is, is dissecting yeah. albums. I have a dumb question to start out with. The album's called EDC. Where does that come from?
0: Well, the guys, the other three, they called it the, you know, Eternal Dank Coven or Expert Diamond Cutters or they had all kinds of... They were, like, dabbling in graffiti. And uh, they also dabbled in skateboarding. They could barely skate. But, um... <laughs> um they, uh, uh... That was their deal. They named our rehearsal space EDC and, so it really
2: has a lot of meaning. I thought it was a chord progression and I was looking for a song that had the chord progression E, D, and C on the album and I couldn't find one. So I'm glad that's cleared that, up.
0: I never I don't how think much, I ever thought of I don't think I ever thought of that, but that still
1: like, seems like logical. How much time did you waste doing that? <laughs> You'll never get that back now. The 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 one thing I noticed about the album, Sean, was that the the production credits are really all over the place. What what's the story behind that and how did that happen?
0: We had a rehearsal space that was uh, had a door in the middle and one side was us and then the bathroom was on the other side of the door, so and that and that side was an A track studio that uh, Barrett Jones, who moved out to Seattle with Dave Grohl and uh as a drum guy. They were friends and uh, Barrett uh, had an eight track studio and he you know it was dave and him had this built this studio over there and uh so barrett uh barrett went on you know he he did the first Foo fires record that's his main thing he did but uh he uh you know just ran the mics up into our space and we started demoing in the summer of uh 94 i mean 93 and so a lot of the tracks are from that from those eight-track demos that we uh-huh. had tried we we were then we were like okay we did these demos and then this producer came and then we went out and spent a month in a studio and it really didn't go that great and uh, we ended up using a lot of the early stuff for the record made it sound really unique in my mind
2: that yeah, yeah. So, one, one of the other things that's kind of an overall question on the album that jay and i were, were talking about is obviously there's a lot of references to the res to the movie Reservoir Dogs. There's the song mm-hmm. titles, and then also the, the actual clips that were played. I we've heard different things. We've heard that it's a concept album. We've heard it's not a concept album. For mm-hmm. it's loosely based. My question is: Did you guys have to pay for the samples?
0: Uh, yeah, we I, we did have to pay. Okay. Are,
1: are, you, are um, you still paying for the samples?
0: No, you pay. You pay. <laughs> it was a one time, one time oh, okay. thing. Okay. Um. Another, th- again, uh, Satchel was kind of like three guys that were, I don't know, I was not usually involved in the sort of the hijinks as much. So, you know, while I was in working on some vocals, they were in the TV room watching Reservoir Dogs, and they started. I think we just had, you know, when you write a song, you come up with a new idea, and we would mark it down, and we were naming some songs, pink, blue, whatever. And then they were watching Reservoir Dogs, and, like, the other three guys were like, hey, man, it's you know put these clips in so then on this little demo we made for ourselves they put the clips in and then uh you know because you know and then we so we called the songs mr pink and mr blue and they didn't have anything to do with uh anything except it kind of sounded cool (laughs) 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 and then we got to do it i think it was five thousand dollars or something you guys
2: were kind of ahead of the curve because that was only a like a year and a half i think reservoir dogs came out in 92 and it really didn't catch on. It was kind of a cult film at the time, but I think it wasn't until Pulp Fiction came out that everybody sort of went back and, and watched that movie. At least I didn't. I didn't know who he was in 92.
0: Yeah, um, I remember it, I, it was kind of, it was a thing here. People knew, people, you know, people were going to see it. In the, I saw it in the theater. So it was known in Seattle, I guess, among our circle, I guess.
2: Let's start out with track one, Mr. Brown. Mm-hmm.
0: It's no
2: an interesting lead-off track, and I've noticed this on a couple of the albums that you've been involved in, that it's it starts out slow, with a with a mm-hmm. kind of a slow burn. Is that a conscious thing, to start the albums for the most... I think... I can only think of Brad Interiors as maybe one of the few albums that starts out with a with a faster song. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer to start with something slower, and well, then build from yeah. there?
0: I'm not sure how conscious it is, except maybe it's just whatever the, the instinct is at the time. I think Brownlee was starting shows with it, maybe, because mm-hmm. it just has a big opening and boom, you know? Right. And I guess I never really thought of it as being slow that much. Uh, but it's not, it's not overly thought out or anything. Although, you know, Buttercup started off shame, and that's because it was just kind of the best song, and you know, I don't know why we did it that way
2: yeah you put if you think it's the best song you put the hits first i guess you go with the motown mentality
0: But um, I, you know i don't i don't know i think we started the shows with brown and we just
1: put it there i think for our listeners who are who are going to listen to this album for the first time you know one of the things they're going to be i think um they're going to notice and be attracted to first is, is your voice i mean it's very distinctive um i think it's one of the best voices of the last 20 years in rock um but enough ass kissing. Um, <laughs> when you started singing, especially you know in the '90s, you know your voice is very different than what a lot of people think of as uh, you know in '90s music. You know, did you realize that? Were you self conscious about it? Was it? Did you have any like pushback in terms of you know what your voice sounded like and how you sang, or did everything go pretty smooth for you?
0: Well, I I, I guess I I came from uh, I didn't come from the '90s, so. Um, and I didn't. I, I came. I was a Prince fan, and a you know, I, I had my metal, my my sort of rock era, 18, mm-hmm. eighteen, nineteen, twenty. I, I worked through a lot of uh, my rock Styling and uh, you know, I had a phase. There's old recordings where you know, I was going to see Alice in Chains all the time, and I was doing I I I, <laughs> <you know? laughs> and and I worked. Through those, you know, I, I uh, you know, sort of like, it's just something I worked through. If I would have been putting out records when I first was, people were noticing me, and you know, I would have had some embarrassing. I think I would have had some embarrassing moments. <laughs> so,
1: so there's uh, you know, some recordings the time, out
0: there. But uh, no, there's not. There's only one that I found when my grandma just recently passed, and she had a cassette I'd sent that I'd lost, and it was from '88, yeah. and it's. It embarrasses me a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) And then by the time my first recording, real recording of a record, was the first pigeonhead, and I was just at a point of a low point, and I completely just went for it and released and found some whatever it is you find uh, that and uh, divine intervention or
3: something. Yeah.
0: I worked. I worked to get where I got. You know, by the time I was 26, I, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't. When I, you know, some guys are, you know, are great at 16 or 20 or something. I wasn't. So.
1: Well, it's that's especially, I think, cool to hear in the sort of American Idol society we live in, where you know you're supposed to have developed as an artist by the age of 16 and be a phenomenal singer. Otherwise, yeah. you have no music career. It's cool to hear that. Exactly. You know there was a time when somebody could make mistakes and you know develop from there and sort of find themselves and then i'm assuming by this point you were completely confident in what what you sounded like and what you wanted to do well, sort
0: of um, you know I, yeah i mean you know and also i had a, i only took a couple scene lessons but the lady told me i was a really good mimic and i i think you know i mimicked and and then i stopped mimicking so i think that's sort of a I learned by mimicking and then you you stop I don't know it's it's a it's a process though. So.
2: Mhm. Uh, track 2 Equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Couple of technical questions, I guess you would say, uh, about this song. Well, I guess one of the first things I wanted to ask is, you're credited as playing guitar on this record. is Is this one of the songs? Because the first couple songs, there isn't really what, what you're kind of known for is is piano and keyboards, and there isn't really a lot on the first. I think like three songs. So were you playing guitar on these first couple tracks?
0: Yeah, the first two. I didn't play on the third one, but I, yeah, I played on the first and second one.
2: Okay, because, yeah, the, fir- the first song has, like, it sounds like there's at least three different distinct guitar tracks on that yeah. one. And then on the second one, there's multiple tracks. And it sounds like there's an Ebo, possibly, on the,
1: on the Equilibrium.
0: I don't think so. I, I kind of think I'm the only one that played guitar
1: on it. There's okay. some, like, crazy sustain going on. <laughs> some, like, almost violin-style sustain on that song.
0: Yeah, I'd have to yeah. listen again, but I- I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that played on it.
1: And this is a song that you hear, um, that you guys do a lot on the album, you, I think you affect the drums? Like you distort them? Um, yeah. What, was that something you guys intended to do from the get-go or were you just kind of screwing around and thought, hey, that sounded cool and just left it that way, or
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. However that, was reco- that particular drum was recorded, I, I don't really remember. Um, I kind of remember him doing it, but I don't remember Equilibrium being that distorted.
1: It's just like a little bit of a sort of a weird effect on it.
0: Um, yeah, I'm sure in the mixing, I, they probably did
1: that. Uh, okay, cool.
2: You mentioned um, Prince a minute ago, which I think has been an artist that, especially when I was l- listening to the Skeleton Keys albums, mm-hmm. I can hear a lot of those like early Prince records where it's just him and kind of, kind of a drum machine. It's not as the big produced stuff like on, on Purple Rain and the later albums. Was that a primary influence? Because I, I also hear... You know stuff like Stevie Wonder and and a lot of the soul stuff from the you know late '60s and, and '70s, especially. Um, was that also stuff that you were into?
0: Well, I was into it, but I think Prince was the primary motivator towards the, the you know drum machine, simple songwriting type things. You know, I, I mean Stevie Wonder. I guess I could grasp Prince. Stevie Wonder's a little harder to reach for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, he's a oh, little in,
2: insane sometimes with the and with his playing. I mean,
0: ultimately, I just, you know, first started, I got a drum machine when I was 18, and I first started kind of writing songs with a drum machine, and, mm-hmm. you know, and all I had was a drum machine and keyboard and maybe a guitar or something. That's just the way I, I work if I'm just by myself at home or something.
2: You mentioned taking uh, vocal lessons. Did you take any piano or guitar lessons?
0: No. I mean, I, you know... I took a few guitar lessons, but they they wouldn't show me. They just wanted me to play. And I had a little lamb, and I wanted to know what the <laughs> guys were doing up on their neck and what kind yeah. of chords are those. And man, if the dude would have just told me, I'd probably, you know. But yeah. I quit.
1: I was the same way, and I heard an interview with Steven Van Zandt today on Howard Stern, and he said the exact same thing. He was like, when we were kids, they didn't teach us how to play cool songs. They told you taught to you how to play technique and traditional songs, and now you go to take guitar lessons, and they're like, yeah, what do you want to learn? You want to learn Black right, Sabbath? Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. yeah, it's very different now than it was then.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I put it down for a while. I was into dance music in high school, and then picked it up again, got back into rock. And-
1: well,
2: that's a good segue to, into track three. Uh, taste it which is probably I think in terms of guitar riffs on this album is probably one of the heaviest on the whole album I'm assuming then you didn't play guitar that that was John Hogue. Yeah. Okay. Was that something that they had the song and you just like you said with all hell the crown where you just sort of came up with the lyrics over top of it or was that more like a collaborative?
0: That would have been one where they the band did the, the other guys did the put the track together and then I sang
1: on it. It, it kind of has a uh, Allison Chain's uh, bass lift feel to it. Did you have any... Was there any point where you thought about maybe going back to that vocal style?
0: Well, no. I mean, for for basic... uh, I don't know. I mean, I do it differently. We still do it. It's a mainstay. But... uh, Oh, cool. I do it differently. I think I do it better, and I I don't do some of the higher stuff because it doesn't translate It's harder to do live. Hmm. And that also had two versions, and we've all realized that the first version was better, and I changed the lyrics and everything. We lost the other version, it was early stages of figuring shit out.
2: Which most bands go through when they're putting out their first record and doing their first recording, so that, that makes sense. Now, it is an interesting transition because track three is probably the heaviest, and then you move to track four, Trouble Come Down. Is that all you on that track in terms of like drum loop yeah. and then piano? And was that something yeah. that you had written prior to Satchel and brought to the band, or was that during the writing of this album?
0: No, that that was when we were in the in the studio. We we recorded it north of Seattle in a place called Bear Creek, and we were lived out there for a month. I just went in, and I you know we were working with this producer, and it it didn't work out. But he's you know I had to try of trick him to do stuff because <laughs> he was kind of stubborn, and so I just you know if I would have told him, hey, I'm working up this song, I don't think he he would have. Been against it but i told him i'd already had it probably you know i got it together and then i got the drum machine going i said oh this is just a click track because you know he wouldn't have let me do what i did with it you know what i mean it was that kind of vibe like oh man you know right if, if we had to think about it it wasn't going to happen he'd make me work it out and all that kind of crap so i ran the drum machine through the thing through a distortion and played the music and sang on it and then just you know put it to bed
1: Almost sounds like real drums that are just looped and then affected. It's yeah, a really the drum, cool drum machine sound.
0: going through. Yeah, it's going through this Sonic that I always wanted to have. It's an Sonic rack mount thing that just had. They made samplers at the time and stuff. And I don't know if they still make stuff, but they just had a really interesting distortions inside there in that box. Yeah,
1: so that's all that box—the sound of the drums. Yeah. There's no other. Yeah.
0: yeah. Sometimes you run a drum machine just through a, a distortion pedal, guitar pedals, uh-huh. and
1: really cool stuff comes out. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, okay, track five, uh, more ways than three. This is another one where I think the guitar stuff, sort of like with Equilibrium and Mr. Brown, it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of different tones. Is in reading the liner notes, it seems like stuff was recorded at, at different times. We talked about earlier. Was the different tones simply a matter of you recording at different times? You weren't getting the same guitar tones and using different effects as opposed to like locking out a week and recording everything straight through? Or was it sort of more conscious, like, we're going to definitely use this here and this here?
0: Yeah, we didn't have... we weren't that together. Mr. Brown and Equilibrium and I think Tasted and some others were... more uh, Ways than Three were all done in that, in that month when we were locked down at the studio. So, we were just using whatever tones the producer thought you know he was he was kind of dialing things in, so it was whatever amps were there, I guess
1: yeah, that was gonna be my question it was were you guys like just basically using whatever equipment was around
0: yeah I can't um, remember i mean i i yeah. I had a rig, but i don't you know i didn't I didn't know much more than to just turn it on, yeah. You know, I didn't, you know.
1: This song reminds me a lot of uh, Mother Love Bone. Do you think that's fair? And, and was Andy Wood an influence on you as a songwriter?
0: Well, he was a huge influence on me. And uh, uh, he was my neighbor and friend as well. Oh. And um, I used to go, I used to record song, him on my four track and record songs on my four track. And I sometimes did it with Mother Love Bone too. They'd get around him. I was the guy that had the four track, you know. So <laughs> he me, hey, Sean, man, what are you doing? I'm coming over. <laughs> but I learned a lot of that, you know, talking and speaking of learning, you know, that 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 was huge to to uh, be able to do that and watch people write. That were these were guys that were my age and they were mm-hmm. just heads and tails above me, like, you know. Anyways, uh, I don't know more ways than three. I don't. I never. I don't quite hear the love bone, but.
1: There's something about the the guitar riff, the the guitar yeah. work. It's sort of like a laid back riff with sort of octave chords and stuff. It just reminded mm-hmm. me of their sort of feel and uh, and, yeah. and that sort of even like you. Uh, I know this is a this is a poor comparison, but there's a lyric in there about uh, was it three time champion. And then when I hear you say that, I think of Stardog Champion. Like there's just yeah, yeah uh, between yeah. that and the and the and the chords, it like clicks in my head. Like oh wow okay. I can hear Mm -hmm. sort of a Mother Love Bone feel in this song.
0: Influenced by Andy Wood, so
1: that's awesome. Is that where you met? Uh, is that when you first met Stone?
0: Yeah, well, I met Regan first, and then right after that, I met uh, we, me and Regan started a band, and then his rehearsal space was the Malfunction Space, which was also the Green River, which turned into the Mother Love Bone Space. So that's where I met everybody. I would hang out while Love Bone rehearsed, they were, I thought, they were great oh my god
2: yeah we often debate about you know if if mother love bone had continued you know if what had happened not had not happened what what would that have done to the to the scene in seattle you know would it have been heavier darker bands or would mother love bone had gone on to be the biggest band
1: malfunction documentary i think chris cornell makes a really good point essentially about that they were the band that was everybody looked to maybe bridge the gap between sort of the 80s and the 90s and between the pop metal stuff to what you know seattle was was doing and uh or when he died basically it's his sentiment was you know everybody was like well what the hell happens now like they were supposed to be the ones that were going to make it easy for us and now everything's changed though and i
0: always think well what what if what if you know they might have got sucked into the the eight you know love might have got sucked into the 80s glam hole mm-hmm. you know yeah that that yeah. warrant did you know i, I mean yeah. i don't i don't know i mean they and and really the band was kind of on a downward cycle by the end there i mean it was something about the spark had something had happened to the spark they hadn't written anything new you know the the last few shows were a little to get ready, I don't know. There was friction in the band. There was hmm. Andy was thinking about making a solo album, and you know, it's it might have imploded on the road, anyways. You know, so
1: right, right, right,
0: because it, it it wasn't super healthy, right. But Pearl Jam wouldn't have happened,
1: so. Yeah,
2: it's, it's true. <laughs> and that's it's pretty could amazing, be good, good or bad, depending.
0: No, but you know, there would have been no Pearl Jam, and that's an interesting world.
2: You know, it's a different world, yeah,
0: you know, <laughs> absolutely. You know that, that the blocks that could have moved, that maybe that would have, maybe never mind, would have never been made that right. Ra- I mean, so many things could have changed if if Bone would have, if Andy hadn't died. Who knows what would have what would have happened?
1: Yeah, it's an incredible story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: And it was hugely life changing for me, and as you know, just everyone involved that was friends with him, it was. Life-changing. Right? It just changed our lives, you know. Mm-hmm. His, his, his death was really impacting on, on those that were around him, because he was such a beacon you know, to, to all yeah. of us. He was our, he was the beat in a way, the the, the real deal. If, Absolutely. You know what I mean? He was he was something else live. Like he was really a beautiful artist.
2: Anyway. Yeah, I I think that's well, I think that's a, a thing that a lot of people who even who, who lived through the 90s and they were in their 20s and they were listening to all that music, they don't really know the story as, you know, as as their idea of Seattle is Pearl Jam and Nirvana and mm-hmm. Alice in Chains. They don't really know. I I I was lucky I got to see um there was a documentary that came out in the 90s called Hype mm-hmm. and it kind of gave you a much different picture of seattle have you did you ever see that
0: i kind of avoided it but, but okay. there, was, there was there was two camps there was two distinct camps and then there was other camps of course too but there was because i was uh, involved with sub pop and i was also involved with with you know the mother Lobo, bone and Alice in chains world um those worlds didn't enter intermix very much you know the sub pop people were College, indie, kind of, you know, uh, I want to say richer kids, you know, like the kids that can afford to go and be deadheads, kind of kids, you know. It's like, but people that went to school and stuff, and then the low bone pe- guys were people that didn't go to college. You know what I mean? And and it was more more of the rock scene. And yeah. uh, They were they were specifically different camps, and they didn't really intermingle that much. You know, Mudhoney was in between the two. I don't know. I mean, we all, you know, I went to Tad shows. I went to everything. But there was just a sub-pop kind of looked down on, say, the, you know, Pemble the Dog record or, you know, Allison in Chains. It, it was kind of looked down upon in a way. Not by everyone, That's... but it, that there was definitely two different sensibilities in, in one place, which was really amazing, you know. And all sides had validity and great music, you know, I
1: thought. That was one of the weird things about the 90s is I think it was one of the times where things were um, unfortunately very separated for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like we got very polarized and, uh, you know, I think that was unfortunate. I think now with perspective, it all seems kind of silly, but I remember at the time living through it, it was very real that, you know, you could listen to these bands, but you couldn't listen to these bands and, you know, everything was very separated so well, I think uh, I,
0: I was never, I was never indie, so the there was always this indie mentality that was more that way to me. I listened right. to everything, you know. I, I, what if I liked it, I listened to it. I didn't, I didn't care if it was on a major label or an indie label or anything like that. Right.
2: Yeah. That's not on. Like, I'm reading the um, Bob Mould's biography right now, and uh, he made a point of like when they jumped from SST to Warner Brothers, he didn't look at it as he was betraying. Indie alternative underground. He looked at it as this: this label can only do so much for us, and we want to be able to play more places. And we don't want, you know, if we make a thousand dollars at the door, we don't want the guy pulling a gun on us and saying you're not getting your money tonight. We want to have a label backing us up and giving us guarantees and stuff like that. So, but yeah, I I can totally see how he would have been sort of at a crossroads. I mean, he he says he was at a crossroads with his decision making, and I'm sure that that's. You know, a lot of artists went through that jumping from smaller labels to, to the majors when there were a lot of majors. We don't really
1: it doesn't really happen anymore. But well, uh, speaking of from small to big <laughs> track six, you know, a, a, a Seattle guy ta- uh, singing a song titled Hollywood. Uh, oh. What's the story behind that song? And and one of the things about it that for me that that makes it really unique is the amount of echo <laughs> Where did that come from? And you know, was there any point when you uh, did you record it? You know, kind of straight, uh, without all that effect on it.
0: No, I think, think we it was recorded in the in our rehearsal studio. Oh, okay. And we were getting this big drum sound out of there, and I, I, I can't remember. If I, it just always had lots of effects on it, and, and uh, it's just what it was. It was just a big kind of creepy. Yeah. Right, yeah. You
1: know. Well that's because the echo adds a lot of um, feel to it and ambiance, and mm-hmm. you can tell like vocally like you're kind of singing off the echo a little bit. So it was interesting mm-hmm. to try to figure yeah, out like yeah. were you performing with the echo on or was that something that yeah. you guys just added at the end?
0: Yeah, and, I would have had the I would have had the echo on. Very while cool while I was doing it. Yeah.
2: The next song that's actually one of my favorite songs on the record because it's so different. It has a saxophone, which I think in 1994. I don't know that there was another song recorded that had a saxophone on it because the saxophone was kind, of, was kind of outlawed in the 90s, I think. But it, it has like this Marvin Gaye "What's Going On" kind of vibe yeah. to it. it was it, is that? It, am I in the right know, ballpark?
0: Yeah, and that's why we liked it. But I'll tell you, we could never recreate it. You know, it. We were capturing things in our studio, in our rehearsal space. You know, that were just. We were just capturing moments, and and that was a moment that, you know, when we were taken said, hey, you're going to really do the record now in a studio, we, you know, we couldn't recreate it. We weren't, we're not, you know, that we captured something like, this is different. This sounds like, yeah, like Marvin Gaye. It's got this feel to it. And and so, but it's not a feel that we, I would say that we are able to conjure up, you know, again. Like, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. it's just kind of got this thing that we captured that is not really I don't want to say beyond our abilities because we actually did it but it's like sometimes when you improv something like it's mostly improv uh, uh, it's probably part of a jam and uh, at least the music so sometimes those types of things are you capture things that that are really difficult to like recreate and and to recreate the ambiance you know when we went into the studio to do some of this stuff over it was like we didn't have that ambience anymore we lost the big weird room we were in that was real you know bo you know echoey and everything got all tight and then the whole picture with uh, the painting of it uh, it's one of the ones where I say you a major label wouldn't have have known what to do with that or wanted on a record, it's just kind of so I don't know
2: (laughs) It, it, it sounds like a we're in the studio, we have all this gear set up, let's just jam for a while it doesn't sound like something you would be like, all right, let's write parts for this song ahead of time and then go into the studio, it sounds much more of the moment than like Tasted or some of the other songs
0: on the record but of course, but of course, I don't know the uh, that's the way uh, what's going on. Some of those Marvin Gaye records were done, they just started playing,
3: hmm. Yeah. yeah, so
0: that's the same. It's the, it's like we captured a little ghost of that. I mean, it happens a lot in, in jams and uh, Fatchel a lot where it's just magnificent things will happen that we can't fly by while you're jamming. Man, if you could harness it, great, but boy.
1: Tough. Well, I think that describes this album overall pretty well, is that, you know, there's all of these special moments that happen, and you really have to, you know, there's times where, where it wanders, but there's times where, out of nowhere, you know, things lock, lock together and the right mm-hmm. uh, chemistry happens, and you, you yeah. hear it, and there's a couple yeah. lines where you're like, oh my god, that's awesome, and then it sort of loosens yeah. up again and changes, Yeah, and, yeah. so... And that doesn't happen very much anymore, it seems like, with with the way that records are made now. Like, everything is so pre-thought and and pre-programmed.
0: Well, and, and, you know, when we went in to do the next record, we didn't have that anymore. You know, we had lost that, whatever we had, the innocence. mm -hmm. And so the family's very different.
2: Oh, yeah, it it almost sounds like a different, it's it's much more song-oriented, whereas this seems to be much more feel-oriented, where it's... Yeah.
0: so you know I, I I buckled you know we had a stone produced it and I buckled down and wrote some songs you know because I wanted some songs and we were more the label was more involved in terms of wanting to know it if it's gonna be good
2: for track 8 mr. pink one of the mm-hmm. one of the reservoir dog titles it starts out and the name Chelsea comes up mm-hmm. was that a reference to is that actually is this one of like a, a reference to somebody or is it a, just a, a a name that sounded good.
0: Well, that's someone that I've had thing for that whole summer in the making of the record, and uh, it was sort of a muse for a lot of the sort of yearning that's on the album. <laughs>
2: yearning is good for rock and you roll. Know, like,
0: <laughs> like uh oh, and and you know that that just in Hollywood, those were that was a yearning. There was a wounded animal type of vibe going on there that makes that the album really stamped onto my soul in a way that others aren't necessarily yeah yeah i play the more, more, more uh, melodic
2: stuff okay
1: because
2: jay you mentioned something about the what you thought was going on with the guitar
1: yeah it's it's almost like uh, the guitar approach is almost like you would play an organ like the mm-hmm. its chords are really they hold out and it's more on the back beat is, is keyboard and, and piano your first instrument and you sort of find yourself playing guitar as if from the, from the standpoint of a keyboard player or a piano player?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, the main riffs and everything, the big held stuff, that's, uh, that was our guitar player. Oh, okay. But it, it's uh, symptomatic of the drop D tuning and the way it was played. So it's just, you really just hit the chord and it just hangs. hmm. And it's just a, that was kind of the satchel style. It, a lot of it's because of the way Regan plays drums, and he plays kind of backwards. like you know, he's playing behind. You know, he's leading with his kick foot, you know. So, that, most of that feel. is... Yeah, his
1: drumming—it's very uh, huge part of this this album. I mean, you can mm-hmm. definitely tell that uh, his style, his confidence to be able to play in slower tempos and mm-hmm. be able to fill in the space. I mean, I know yeah. from playing drums myself a little bit that that is very hard to do. Um,
0: Yeah, a lot of people comment like drummers. Really good drummers comment on his ability to play slow is is rare. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. It's it's one of the things that makes this album, you know, really, really special. I think is that uh, you don't hear a lot of albums where, you know, you can maintain tempos, you know, in a slower area, but still keep the songs super, you know, really interesting, and they just have so such a great feel to them. Yeah, Um, especially. uh, I mean, I know we're talking about EDC, but especially that that first Brad album as well. I mean, yeah, the, the rhythm yeah. parts on that album are just amazing.
0: Yeah. You can't take him out of Brad or Satchel. It, just, it would be a, another band. Right. They don't exist without me or him. So.
2: Absolutely. Track nine, uh, built for it. You're singing in a lot of falsetto in this song. When did you figure that out in terms of your songwriting or your, your singing progression? Because falsetto is not something that a lot of people, they didn't do it then, and even the people that do it now don't necessarily even do it right. Was that something that in, in terms of singing along to Prince songs when you were learning his songs that you sort of f- figured out? Or was it when you got more confidence? Because it's, it's kind of a, even though you're singing high, you're actually like kind of singing, it's it's like you're backing the vocal down almost to a whisper at sometimes, mm-hmm. which is kind of bold, especially for this song. gets kind of heavy at at parts. Mm-hmm. When did that sort of come in to your singing repertoire?
0: Well, it came from Prince, uh, and maybe I was also into Earth Wind and Fire, so a well, little Philip Bailey in there. Some of it comes from me not being, at the time, not being able to sing that high in my lower register. And uh, I just would do that. And, you know, in fact, when Stone was producing a family record, he uh, talked to me about not singing falsetto. (laughs) (laughs) Really? See if I could sing more things in my, because I guess I did a lot of falsetto on uh, the First Brad record, maybe, too, a little bit. Yeah, but uh yeah yeah there's some courses in that but uh it's kind of like a crutch i went to maybe in a way yeah and uh i don't do it as much now it's really hard to do live so i try to do things that i can actually do live and falsetto doesn't really cut through the, the noise you know
2: speaking of the the brad album the track 10 mr blue mm-hmm. that sort of shares a guess a similar sound with rock star from the bread album was were they written around the same time or is was there some sort of connection between those songs
0: no and i didn't have anything to do with blue that was uh uh, regan and john and corey's thing (laughs) that's their Uh, their explore their exploration
1: because i was going to ask you if you if you remember anything about making the song and that would be a net. no.
0: I, no, I don't think I played a note on it. I don't think.
1: Do you think any of those guys remember anything about making the song?
0: Well, I think they remember making it. I don't think they <laughs> yeah. could play it. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't even comment on it. But no, Rockstar <laughs> was a <at> this time. <laughs> okay. I should have said no comment. <laughs> so, uh,
1: so, so, for the record, Mister Blue is is an album. It's an album track.
2: Yeah. <laughs> excellent uh track 11 starts out with the reservoir dogs um, sample where they mentioned mm-hmm. satchel of diamonds is there where the mm-hmm. was the, the band already named or did they did the name come from that line
0: uh, the band was already named 99 percent sure but I, I would guess that that was something though that they went hey that's satchel I could be wrong yeah maybe maybe we didn't have a name because we had another name and then we had to change it. And so I'm not really sure when we changed it. We, it could have been taken from that, but I think we were, you know, buying weed or something and calling, you know, <laughs> 40 bags satchels, because I, I, I think that's where it came from. One of the guys had, you know, who's got the satchel. I, that's, it, not the that's, that? <laughs>
2: that's not yeah. in the official bio.
0: What's that? That's not in the
2: official bio.
1: See, this is the kind of stuff when we get the band history from Wikipedia that we don't get. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Man, tell, the, tell the truth,
1: man. <laughs> this sounds um, like uh, a, a, the, there's an Ebo on this or something. Like there's some huge guitar yeah, sustain going on. Is it Willow? Yeah. Is yeah, Willow. Yeah,
0: yeah. Willow? Yeah,
1: that's uh, Ebo, I believe. Okay. I, this might be one of the songs that caused a lot of uh, me and my friends to go out and get Ebo's and make a lot of really awful sounds oh, really? with them. Oh. <laughs> How's he doing that? I don't know. And then you just you know, screw around with it for a while and, and nothing. You, you can't reproduce what you what you heard.
2: It, it also sounds like there's some other instruments in this song that are not on the rest of the record. That. It's correct, Is sure. there a cello or some sort of a stringed instrument on this record, or are we just hearing some sort of a keyboard on it?
0: I don't know. I don't know. I would have to listen. I haven't listened to it. There could be bells in there somewhere. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't really remember There might be there was some pump organ at the studio maybe it's maybe there's something like that in there uh that could be it
1: there's some like really really lightly played either acoustic guitar or banjo that's like underneath everything that's really cool one of those songs like the more you listen to it and the better speakers that you have you start to hear all kinds of different things you didn't hear the first time which is pretty cool
0: Yeah, cool
2: track 12 uh the roof almighty again this is another song with lots of effects i'm wondering does that affect your choices for what you're going to play live because you guys like you said you're playing tomorrow which tomorrow this comes out on next tuesday so it'll actually be last week when, when we put this out does that affect what songs you guys put in the set list based on if they're heavily affected and you can't necessarily do that live, or do you just ignore that?
0: I, yeah, it all depends on how hard they are to play, really. Uh, like the Roof Almighty, you know, I think we, we've played it just dry. I mean, I, I, I just, that was my mix. I just did a crazy mix of it. And uh, effects wouldn't really change
1: anything. Gotcha. Sort of like like an octave, octave effect or something on your voice that's going on. It almost sounds like yeah. there's two of you, but there's not really. Yeah, So.
0: Ev- Evan Tide
1: uh, okay. uh, effects boxes.
2: Like Steve ah, yes. I uses. And then the last song... <laughs> yeah. Um, last song is the one that you mentioned when we started out, which is Suffering. So this wasn't originally intended to be on the album is what you're saying is that basically they heard the record and were like
0: no demos were being you know the demos were being sent okay and there was you know mr pink and mr brown and tasted and it was just the guy was you know i mean our guy was confused by what he'd signed and which i didn't understand on any level like what the fuck no you know i look back and go god you know of course he was confused yeah, <laughs> but,
1: um, <laughs> it's a diverse um, album.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, this... and you know, suffering almost really we played it once, and then no one wanted to play it again. And then you know, there was talk like it wouldn't be on the album, and I just kind of quietly kept it on, pushed it on there. You know, maybe the other guys would say different, but it, it wasn't like they were jumping for joy for it. I don't know why. Maybe I, you know,
2: uh, is it too so ballad oriented for them? Were they? worried that it was too you know it's a lot of the album when you have slower songs there's when there's piano there's you know trouble come down has uh, effects on it and it, and roof almighty was it just not like messed up enough for
0: them i don't know i think there's something about it that isn't wasn't supernatural i um, not supernatural but wasn't very natural for everyone there's some lilt in it or something that the band it it wasn't there yet as a band, maybe to play it. I mean, they played it the one time when we recorded it, and then it just seemed like there was always kind of bickering about it. Uh, hmm.
1: um, so, so,
0: but it the became perform- a main, you know, it's a, it's a mainstay, but you know, it, it, it had its early beginnings. It was questioned. I so,
1: think. you're saying the performance of this was like kind of a one off? Yeah. Like the recording? So wow.
0: The recording on the record, yeah, was from a, the, one of our first uh, pre production when we were with the producer who
1: came up and had some songs wow because there's a really See, I... cool uh dynamic that happens it's like you all you, you kind of gradually build through the verse and then you kind of release and you go quiet and you build again and i don't know that's the kind of thing that I, I guess playing in a band maybe, maybe it does make sense that that's the kind of thing like you can nail early on but the more you play the song <laughs> it actually becomes harder yeah. to Can you continue to do that because everybody keeps wanting to, like, speed up or play harder?
0: Yeah, when it's fresh, I mean, I still am capturing certain, you know, not everyone's like that, too. Regan's kind of a drummer. If you catch him early, you you capture more of the sometimes him making decisions is what sounds cool. Like, you know, him making Mm. new decisions, dynamically doing things that once he starts really practicing, maybe it's harder to recreate. Yeah, He's, you know, heads and tails above what he was then. Overall, now these twenty years back then, you know, we were just capturing what we could capture, and sometimes the more we played it, it just didn't get better. You know, we we lose the spontaneity and the kind of magic of it.
3: Listen to an angel sing. Listen to the joy it brings. Huddled underneath the cloud I would just shout.
1: One of the things about Suffering that I wanted to ask was, um, personally, how I how I came to know of Satchel was, you know, I was aware of Brad and I got the Brad record and was really, you know, obviously right off the bat a fan of your voice. But at this time, you know, it's the early 90s. It's really hard to get information about bands and what other bands these people are in. You can just go to Google and search. Yeah, yeah, um, and I remember going to see the movie Beautiful Girls and I'm sitting there watching the movie and all of a sudden... The voice that I was so, you know, awed by comes on during this movie. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I know this voice and I, you know, sort of, you know, did the investigation and figured out, okay, this is the same singer from Brad and Beautiful Girls came out, what, two or three years after EDC. How did that song end up on that soundtrack?
0: If I'm not mistaken, was Greg Dooley from African Wigs the music supervisor on that or he helped, he helped there, do the, that?
1: Right, they're probably in yeah, there's they have a song on the on the soundtrack too.
2: I think they have a couple covers.
0: Yeah, I think I think he was involved in putting that soundtrack together and so he was we were friends and he was a big fan of that song, so he he even took a lyric for one of his songs from
1: it. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I I was gonna ask about that.
0: Yeah, so yeah, that was my lyric first. He called me to me. Right, 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 right. And I think he, yeah, got it wrong too. But, he, <laughs> anyways, that's that's where that, I think that's where that came from. And probably the movie was put together. You know, the the music was being put together way before the movie came out. So,
1: right.
0: Because I don't remember okay. it being that long after '94 that 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 was starting to be talked about. But it was a great placement.
1: Yeah, it, it was it was really cool. And it And sort of led me down to you know uh, to be a fan of your career basically and be able to follow like piece together okay the guy in the Brad is in satchel and then I could sort of follow yeah. from that point forward so it was yeah, it was cool it also I think I discovered uh, Holland Maggie because of that soundtrack too which was a
0: oh yeah yeah
1: we're both we're from Columbus so we're fans of that band like, now yeah. but uh,
0: yeah. and H- happys in you know happy Ch- Chesters in Brad
1: he is.
0: Yeah, he's a he's a side guy. He's not like, but he's been playing with us for live for ten years, and uh, you'll you'll be seeing him on. uh, We're going to be putting out a lot of stuff on YouTube of uh, live takes in the studio and stuff, and you'll see a lot of happy.
1: Oh wow, that's awesome.
0: He's he's my go-to. He's played on my solo records, and he's uh, he's fantastic.
2: This would be a good time to mention that there's a new song up. If you go to thebandbrad.com. There is a new track, which is actually... Now, is that you guys playing the song live and it being recorded in while you're playing it? Or is that yeah. you guys basically playing... Okay.
0: Yeah, there's a, there was some controversy because the, we did some editing from different takes of that day, but I don't know what's wrong with that. Some fans wrote in. <laughs> it doesn't look live. It looks like, <laughs> like... Come on, man. We had one camera. Anyways, uh... Yeah, we got a whole. We did a whole bunch, like ten or twelve or something, other songs uh, for the new record that we're going to be putting up uh, live shots of. Because we got together so the, and did a whole bunch of the songs live, and a couple of the takes made it to the record.
1: So is cool. this version of Wa- "Water's Deep" going to be the one that's on the record?
0: Oh, uh, "Water's Deep's not going to be on the record. So
1: really, yeah, <laughs> yeah. what? <laughs> we love that
0: song. It wow. how is that possible? I don't know. You'll
1: have to hear the new album. <laughs> All right. Wow. That sets expectations high because that is like that song. When I, when I saw that, I was completely blown away. Oh, I thought that's it
0: was great. That's, that's really good to hear.
1: And, and and I think it made it extra special, the, the video concept of just seeing you guys play it. It just, yeah. I don't know. There's just a grittiness to it that I didn't, I didn't know the band. Um, it, it's just another aspect of the band that I didn't know existed. There's just a heavy and a grittiness to it. But it's still within mm-hmm. character, I think, of what. Yeah. You know what? What we think of as Brad, but it's just a different side of it. That, uh, yeah. so, but it's not going to be on the record then. No. Wow. But, okay. uh, like... and
0: uh, yeah, I'm mean, I'm really excited about the other stuff we filmed because then we got together and filmed a, a whole bunch of stuff and lots of great outtakes and the guys learning stuff and it's really cool. It's really exciting. Um, that we got to capture all this stuff.
1: So happy appears on the on the record and in the videos.
0: Yeah, he played on. Well, the three songs we played live that made the record, he, uh, he's in the. Yeah, in the film.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, he's not in Water's Deep. Okay, usually right. he comes up, so he's not in that. I forgot.
2: So, EDC. It's 18 years since that's been released. Does it sound different now than when it did? Um, in terms of, you know, at the time it sounded. I, it was probably one of the most unique records I had heard I, I think mm-hmm. I was with Jeff I discovered it because of the song on the soundtrack and I remember listening mm-hmm. to it and being kind of blown away but now I hear it and I do hear those like Jay was mentioning like and, and you mentioned like Allison Chains mm-hmm. on some of the riffs and stuff like that and it doesn't sound as separated from what was going on as I initially thought do, do you sort of hear more of a connection to what was going on then than you did then?
0: Uh, well, I think so. I mean, I, you know, we play, you know, Mr. Brown and Mr. Pink and More Ways and Three and Taste, that have big rock numbers. Uh, we play those all the time and they're super fun to play. They have these huge riffs in them.
3: Mm.
0: And, you know, we were using Drop D, Soundgarden is using, you know, there's elements, yeah, here in there. We were just weird. A little bit weirder, I guess.
1: Right. <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah.
2: It seems like both of the the debut records from both Brad and Satchel are like the weirder records and it seems like on the second albums they became much more streamlined and with the second Satchel album has a lot more it's a lot more piano focused I think and whereas the second yeah. Brad album is a lot more guitar riff yeah. focused is that more well, of you playing guitar well, or was that Stone?
0: No it was you know, you can also listen to the first Pigeonhead, which is super weird so all mm-hmm. three of those are weird and then Second pigeonhead's way more together. And the second satchel record, we were really on a you know, it was more. The label was you know, we had a producer. We had Stone and, and this guy Matt Wallace who did the big uh, big records with Mike Patton with that band. Uh, Faith no more. You know. Yeah, Faith no more. they did the big yeah. yeah, this guy did the big Faith no more record, and so and he was like you know he went home at midnight or eleven, and you know he just was producer. And it was more, you know, songs had to be together. And I was the only one that was writing any songs, and I wrote them all on piano. And there was a few other ones brought in. One rock one, you know, just no, you know, our guitar player, John, just wasn't bringing stuff in. You know, he didn't. And we'd lost that thing we had, our clubhouse, we'd lost it to, you know, it got tore down. And we kind of lost that home base that we'd had. And, And then for interiors and again it was a label was involved and it hadn't been before and you know someone wanted to make a record that you know more commercial we didn't have to work that hard at doing anything different than we normally do it just was recorded slicker you know And, and loose ends were tied up you know that that would have been let loose and dangle before you know make sure you get your bridge and then you get to your chorus and things are tight
2: Right. And there's no Mr. Blue on those records.
0: No, those weren't. No, there's no Mr. Blue. Which you no. Know, I've had fans just
1: say, "Man, I hate that song, Mr. Blue." <laughs> 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 I don't know. I don't think there's any Mr. Blue type songs on on, album, on anybody's albums anymore. No. You know. No. It's 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 all very uh, it, it that's premeditated. I don't That's
0: remember, nice. maybe on my email, it you know, it was amazing that we got uh, EDC put out by Epic Records. It just was not what you know they would have put out without Stone's involvement, because Stone came in and helped us finish it and do the final mixing and everything. It was kind of like an old story where they, they let us have that one, you know, they <laughs> let us put that one out and let them do it, that our our guy michael goldstone was completely didn't know what to do so well i was, well, just, I, was I was just being free we were just right. being free I, I felt like i should be allowed to do whatever i want and luckily i didn't know any better so
2: i think one of the things that jay and i have learned in over the over a year we've been doing this and, and getting into the history of various bands is that post nirvana up until maybe like 96 97 it seemed like there was a lot more leeway for bands getting signed and and it, for a couple years you know we talked about bands like jawbreaker and rocket from the crypt that really didn't have a lot of commercial appeal but got signed to huge advances and deals and we listen to them now and we're like what were those people thinking like this was a very niche band and they were going to sell maybe 100,000 records, but they were getting signed to deals that, like, R.E.M. was getting. and Well,
0: they yeah, the, the labels, it, it was a little window. They signed everything, kind of like they scooped it all up, hoping, throwing everything against the wall to see what would hit. You know, because they mm-hmm. didn't, you know, the industry didn't know if Nirvana was going to be big. I remember a discussion with someone, and it was like, they thought maybe it would go go gold, and from where I was sitting, from in the little hotbed world that I was sitting in, I was like, "This, this fucking thing's gonna sell a million records." Are you kidding me? When I heard Teen Spirit, I was like, "Kidding me? This is gonna explode!" Mm-hmm. And but you know, I also knew that Katrina was gonna be a disaster, and uh, <laughs> I knew that Saddam <laughs> didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Well, but but I really, you know, you know, I just knew, and the industry didn't. They didn't know. But then when it happened, because even the Geffen people, I guess, say, "Shit!" Because people said, "How did you market this thing?" Fuck, we just put it out, and then that single just took off like you know a rocket, like very few singles ever do. I think the interesting
2: thing on our end was that we were, you know, we were in college radio in the Midwest. We're we're at a station that is like. Ground zero for every band to send their CDs and every label to send it. So we're literally get we went mm-hmm. from getting a box of CDs a week for every label to getting a box per label of like right. forty forty CDs and you and you have like seven people on a music staff and you're like, how are we supposed right. to listen to all this music? How are we supposed to even like figure out what we should be playing, let alone what the good stuff is and you start relying on like CMJ and and they're putting out yeah. the lists. But it was, I remember there was a definite increase where their labels were just going. I, I had a friend in college who went to high school with a couple guys. They had a band. They were a three-piece, You know, kind of sounded like the second generation Nirvana. They got $5,000 thrown at them by a guy from a record label just to have them record a demo. Like I, I can't even imagine anybody doing that today. Where it's just like, yeah. here's a check, go record a demo. Let's hear what it sounds like. Yeah. Like that, that yeah. was well, I, so specific to that time.
1: Well, yeah. I think what's cool is that, I mean, Sean, you've you lived through that and now you're very much involved in sort of, you know, the current music landscape. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're active on Bandcamp, you're, mm-hmm. you know, out there working, you don't, I, you know, I don't sense that you have any plans of giving this up anytime soon. So mm-hmm. what is your perspective on what it was like then and what it's like now and is one better than the other?
0: Well, I, being someone that really likes to do whatever I want, and I, I, I like to just put out music whenever I can, I, I'm, I'm lucky because I have someone with money around me, so I'm able to, and it owns a studio, so, don't, so I'm afforded a lot of opportunities that uh, other people might not be. Um, but now, you know, people can do everything in their home and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's things about the old way that if I could jump back into my body and go back there, it would be fun, mm-hmm. you know, because to, to, I would have known how to utilize, you know, work the system more and I don't know, make some money, you know, maybe <laughs> 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 I, that's the one thing I didn't really do. But, um, I mean, there, there were, there were good things about it, you know, getting a record deal and not very many people got them. It was and you got a big advance and you got to buy stuff and go to a studio and you got to trips to new york and and it was good times you know a lot yeah of good times. Yeah, and, yeah. and you don't get that as much now you kind of it, it just everybody's doing it um everybody's recording songs everybody's everybody's everywhere um i'm enjoying it right now i love the band camp thing. I just had a blast putting all my stuff up and doing it myself. I, you know, at the end of the day, though, so, you know, making a living is way more difficult. And uh, selling records, there's no record stores. There's there's a, that whole aspect of it is really hard to deal with. You know, record stores, I, I just want to, you know, we have a couple here in Seattle, but I don't go to them. They're in kind of odd spots. It's not like the old days where I don't know I used to always go to record stores and walk around and look around and I just sort of miss that mm. and then and there's no there's just no stores for your product to be sold so you're trying to sell your records you want you want to sell records and there's nowhere to sell them. Mm-hmm. Quality of course the whole quality issue where people are listening to it on bad systems and mp3s and the music mm-hmm. sound that great and I've always been a had a nice stereo and I enjoy really high-quality stuff, and when I make it, I get to listen on the best... In the studio, you're listening to it on the best stereo you could buy, almost. Sure. And uh, I get to enjoy that, but then it gets bumped down to the iTunes level, and I play it in my car when it gets to an MP3. It's like, man, it takes a dive. And yeah. There's pluses and minuses to the whole thing, um, but people are making great music anyways, right? Yeah
1: right absolutely
0: the main thing is songs and i you know growing up i just liked songs it it was i didn't buy that many albums and i'm a song guy so i love songs you know so many i'd love people to listen to my albums too but if they like one song and that's all they like it's cool too
1: absolutely
2: well that's a good um segue for us to talk about your albums and where they're available You mentioned the Bandcamp. It's SeanSmith.Bandcamp.com. You can get all of the solo releases, the Skeleton Keys albums that we talked about, and then there's all the the albums, The Diamond Hand and Shield of Thorns, and the one that came out last year, um, and the the Cedarwood EP. In addition to that, there's the Establishment Store where you can buy both the Satchel and Brad recent releases. Um, And then we mentioned the the BandBrad.com. We can uh, check out the new song, which will not be on the record, but the new record comes out in April, you said?
0: Yeah, new record in April, and uh, yeah, lots of stuff coming up this year for Brad. Are you guys going to tour? Yeah, we're going to tour a little bit, and I think re-release our catalog. Excellent. And uh, stuff like that. We got all our stuff back from Sony, so we're going to re-release it.
1: Maybe on vinyl?
0: Yeah, vinyl's high priority, so.
1: Excellent. Excellent.
0: Everything will be on vinyl
2: that all all be available through the establishment store?
0: No, I, I don't. I don't. I we we have a we signed a deal with a uh, record label called Razor and Tie. And, okay. Yeah. It'll be going through some other channels. I, I, I don't even know if the, is the establishment store still there? I haven't I haven't looked in a
2: while. It was about five minutes before I, I started the podcast because okay. I want to make sure I had okay. all the links. Okay. Because okay, you can but buy probably uh,
0: there. Yeah, you know, it'll be iTunes and all that jazz.
2: Excellent. Maybe when you put out the new, when you re-release the stuff, I know there's a lot of B-sides, especially for the Brad. Uh, yeah. Maybe re-release some bonus tracks. Some
0: yeah, that's what we're stuff. being asked. To, we're asked to do for the for the first two records, and I just there wasn't. I don't think there was any bonus tracks on Shame. That was we had did that record in three weeks, and that's just. I'm pretty sure that's all there is. And uh, interiors, I don't know. I think we already put out some B-sides. I don't know where any of those things are, but we're looking. <laughs>
2: gotta say thank you so much we went a little long but we really appreciate you joining us this was really one of the best episodes we've done being able to di- dissect dis- dissect the whole album and, and go through it track by track uh, I know everybody's going to be really excited when we get to put this out um, right. which will be on uh, February 7th would be the uh, di- right. I believe that's that's next Tuesday yeah. so hey, Van thank Damon you thank you
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: You have no idea how excited I am about that. Oh. <laughs> I'm too. totally am, geeking out. I am too. I'm going to get <laughs> it and
0: put it in my car and turn it up. Enter yeah. I, I, all
1: I've been doing for the last two weeks is just like scouring the internet trying to listen to samples of that record. Oh, Yeah. The first song I was like, "Uh oh," <laughs> yeah. but I have to admit, it was um, way catchier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So I like listened to it one time, and I'm like, "I don't know." And then I found myself throughout the day like singing the song and like knowing all the lyrics. And I'm horrible with lyrics. So yeah. I was like, "Oh, maybe it's better than I thought." And then some of the samples have started to come out, and the samples yeah. are really, really good. And oh, it great. almost makes you wonder, like, what were they thinking releasing that song? in the first place yeah. because uh, yeah. the
0: rest
1: that's of the stuff that's what is I was thinking
0: like... when Sound when Soundgarden released Spoonman on their first I was like what? <laughs> 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 <Spoon> man <laughs> yeah
1: that so is I, a weird song
0: yeah so well it, it has spoons on it best, yeah <laughs> anyways it was great <laughs> talking
1: good... to you guys you yeah time. man thanks a lot
2: yes thank you um, and thanks everybody for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out.
3: To learn more about tonight's guest, visit www.SeanSmithSinger.com for links to music and news updates. Follow Sean on Twitter at the Sean Smith. That's T H E E Sean Smith.
1: Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.